So, as you've heard, we are in the season of Lent. And uh, in this, throughout this Lent season, we're going to do something a little bit different uh, than normal. We're going to change things up a little bit. Uh, we're going to take a bit of a detour from our usual lectionary readings, which are you know, kind of the, the pre-assigned uh, scripture readings for whatever that season of the year is. And we're going to focus our attention on one book in particular, the Book of Lamentations. Now, if, if you're like me, when you realize that you've been asked to turn to the Book of Lamentations, you don't even waste your time flipping through the Old Testament to find it, right? You go straight for the table of contents, because who the heck knows where that book is, right? It, it, it's a book that we don't really pay a whole lot of attention to. We don't uh, read it a whole lot. We don't really talk about it. And I think you'll see pretty soon into chapter one that it quickly becomes obvious why we don't pay much attention to it. Uh, it's a very distressing book. Some, some might even call it depressing. It's a book that's made up of five poems. And these poems are filled with just unrelenting, unapologetic pain, anguish, grief, despair, and heartache, chapter after chapter. They are poems of lament, as you might expect. The emotions of the poems are raw, vulnerable, deeply honest. And although you know, I'll be the first to admit that it, they can be very difficult to read at times, I also think that if we take the time to work through these poems and read them carefully, we will discover the reason that they made their way into the sacred scriptures of Israel in the first place. That if we read these poems for all they are, without trying to kind of whitewash them or sanitize them or <clears throat> provide easy answers where the poet provides none, we will hopefully discover for us the power of lament in our own lives, especially since we live, I think, in what, what we could call a culture of denial, a culture that would much rather suppress and repress uh, than allow for such raw expressions of grief and lament. So we're going to read that first poem today, and we'll, uh, we'll kind of read throughout the, the, the sermon a little bit. But before we get into that first poem, I want to set the scene a little bit. <clears throat> As you probably know by now, the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem by the Babylonians profoundly impacts uh, much of the biblical narrative. But I think we can easily, we all kind of know this, but I think we can easily miss just how tragic and just how devastating an event this was, and how, how tumultuous the period of the Babylonian captivity was for the kingdom of Judah. So there were three attacks on, on Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And even before those attacks happened, the Babylonian and Egyptian empires were, were both struggling for control of this region. It was, it was a land grab, essentially. So they are basically at war with each other in the midst of Judah, in the midst of Jerusalem. And eventually, in, in 597 BC, Babylon finally defeats Egypt. They invade Jerusalem, and they place a puppet king on the throne of Judah. This king has no real power. He's one of the people of Judah, but he, he really has no say whatsoever. And then they, then they deport a number of the kind of leading citizens of Judah. They send them out into exile through the various uh, kind of places of the empire throughout Babylon. After that, there's about 10 years of relative quiet. I don't think you could call it peace, but it was quiet. <clears throat> and 
at the end of those 10 years, that Judean king, who was on the throne technically, uh, he staged a rebellion. And that rebellion, of course, provoked a second invasion from the Babylonians. And this one was by far the most devastating of, of the three invasions. It was a siege that lasted for nearly two years. People were trapped inside the walls of Jerusalem, fighting not only against the outside invaders, but also running out of food. There was a severe famine, people fighting for food, starving in the streets. And then eventually, after two years, the Babylonians broke through the walls, leveled the temple, destroyed the palace, captured the king, and deported even more of the Sidians throughout the various regions of the empire. So you can, you can imagine, I mean, this place is a war zone, absolutely flattened. The city that was once great, that was once the crown jewel of God, is essentially no more. And then further destruction and turmoil followed five years later when the surviving members of the Judean royal family assassinated the Babylonian-appointed governor. As you can probably predict, we know how these things go. The Babylonians invaded the city for a third time, and there was even more destruction, and even more people were sent into exile. So this is the backdrop of the Book of Lamentations. This just unspeakable loss and grief just pervades the entire thing. The, the people who remained in Jerusalem, which is who we think wrote this book, someone who was still in Jerusalem, were surrounded by just the sheer devastation of a city that is no more. And they're left to wonder, where is God? What, what happened? We, we were supposed to be the chosen people. If we follow God, that's the deal. If we are faithful to God, then we would be a great nation. So in today's reading from Lamentations, we meet two distinct characters who will figure prominently throughout the book. Now, there'll be a number of different voices that, uh, that come throughout these various poems, but today we meet two. The first is just simply our narrator. And the narrator kind of guides us, us the reader, through the ruins of this once great city, kind of telling us about the devastation that took place. The second person we hear from is uh, someone we call Daughter Zion, the daughter of God. And she is the personification of the city of Jerusalem. And so these are the two that will speak today. And so our narrator begins. How lonely sits the city that once was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She that was great among the nations. She that was a princess among the provinces has become a vassal. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers she has no one to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile with suffering and hard servitude. She lives now among the nations and finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to the festivals. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan. Her young girls grieve and her lot is bitter. Her foes have become the masters, her enemies prosper because the Lord has made her suffer for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away captives before the folk. From daughter Zion has departed all her majesty. Her princes have become like stags that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers in days of old. 
When her people when her people fell into the hand of the foe, and there was no one to help her, the foe looked on, mocking her, mocking over her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously, so she has become a mockery. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanliness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Her downfall was appalling, with none to comfort her. O oh Lord, look at my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. So the narrator begins to tell the story of the once great daughter Zion. For most of his report, he simply offers the facts. He tells of her devastation and of her ruin without even a hint of compassion. He reveals how great she once was and how deep is her current sorrow. And then in verse 8, we discover what he really thinks of daughter Zion. He says, Jerusalem sinned grievously, so she has become a mockery. In other words, she brought this upon herself. Yes, she has been devastated, and the destruction is vast. But before you go get to feeling too sorry for her, you should know she brought this upon herself. Her uncleanness was in her skirts, he says, perhaps suggesting that her sin was somehow sexual in nature. And indeed, this would make sense uh, since the prophets of Israel often spoke of idol worship or worshiping false gods with language of adultery, talking about Israel being adulterous towards God. So while, while she may have no one to comfort her, this is a devastation of her own doing. She made this bed, and now it is her turn to lie in it. And in the middle of this long report about the destruction that daughter Zion has brought upon herself, daughter Zion speaks up. She interrupts the narrative simply to say, O oh Lord, look at my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. Her first words in the book are a cry to God, a cry for God to look at her, to look upon her affliction, to see the pain and torment and anguish that she is experiencing. She speaks up first, not necessarily to defend herself, but simply to beg that God see her. The narrator then begins to speak again, but as he does, her voice, as you will see, grows stronger. She interrupts him several times. She refuses to allow him to define her story. The narrator continues. Enemies have stretched out their hands over all her precious things. She's even seen the nations invade her sanctuary. Those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see how worthless I have become. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire. It went deep into my bones. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all day long. My, tra my transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They weigh on my neck sapping my strength the lord handed me over to those whom i cannot withstand the lord has rejected all my warriors in the midst of me he proclaimed a time against me to crush my young men 
The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my courage. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is no one to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should become his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear, all you peoples, and behold my suffering. My young women and young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while seeking food to revive their strength. See, O Lord, how distressed I am. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. They heard how I was groaning with no one to comfort me. All my enemies heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. Bring on the day you have announced and let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. So the narrator recounts the horror that daughter Zion faces as people groan and search for food in the midst of a ruined city. Her precious things are no more. Those who were forbidden to enter the sanctuary have entered it and defiled it. And at this, daughter Zion interrupts again, and again she cries out to the Lord to see her affliction. See how worthless I have become, she says. And then she turns to the passers-by, perhaps even to us, the reader, and says, Is it nothing to all you who pass by? Is it nothing? And in what follows, her confusion over what has taken place is apparent. She seems to vacillate between blaming God for her faith, as though she were innocent of all charges, to affirming that the Lord is right, for I have rebelled against his word, she says. She's in this place that I'm sure many of us can relate to, even if in some small way, this place of utter confusion, trying to make sense of what is otherwise senseless, staring down at a life that is in ruins with this powerful urge to put the pieces back together, but realizing that they don't seem to fit. See, O Lord, how distressed I am. My stomach churns, my heart is wrung within me. At the end of her speech, she turns to the subject of her enemies, those who brought this devastation upon her, and she wants nothing more than for them to become like her, for God to deal with them as God dealt with her. She reminds God of the judgment against them for not following the ways of Yahweh. She demands that God bring justice against her enemies. That, it seems, is her only hope and her only consolation. The poetry of Lamentations is, as you can see, powerful, jarring, even difficult to read at times. This is not the type of stuff you would usually expect from the Bible or expect in church. Today we met two characters in the drama, and we'll meet more in the coming weeks. We'll hear from multiple voices about the destruction that daughter Zion faced 
and competing interpretations and understandings of what has taken place. But there is one voice that is conspicuously absent in the book of Lamentations. God never speaks, at least not directly. God never shows up to comfort daughter Zion and tell her it's going to be okay. This, is, this I think, is the voice that we long for throughout the poems, but ultimately the voice that never shows up. When she says, there is no one to comfort me, or my comforter is far from me, we yearn for God to break in and say, yes, I'm here. I am your comforter. But he never does. This has led many to wonder why this book ever became a part of our Bible in the first place. But I think this is exactly the type of book that we so desperately need because it is not a book of easy answers. It refuses those easy answers. We live, I believe, in a culture of denial. Denial especially about pain and grief and sorrow. We have so many things, we've created so many things to distract us uh, from, our, from our pain and from the pain of those around us that we so rarely truly face grief when it confronts us. We live in a world that prefers to suppress and repress everything, and we are taught to present this veneer of happiness and joy and pleasure at all times. We live in a world of easy answers and self-medication. Now, this can be especially toxic in the church, I think, because we are taught, at least implicitly, maybe not out loud, but at least implicitly, that there are certain questions that we're just not allowed to ask. There are certain feelings or emotions that we're not allowed to express. We immediately tell people who are grieving that it's God's plan, just have faith. Or we tell people who are depressed or have other mental health issues that, you know, just keep praying, God will heal you. And those things may be true. They may be true. But those easy answers often also deny the reality of that pain and teach people that they can only express grief and sorrow in certain ways, or even for a certain amount of time. You should, have been, you, should be, you should be healed by now. You should be over that by now. The power of lamentations, I think, is that it gives voice to suffering and pain and refuses to allow it to be easily dismissed or denied. One of my former professors from Columbia Seminary, uh, Kathleen O'Connor, brilliant Old Testament scholar, wrote a commentary on Lamentations, and she, she says it far better than I ever could. She, she writes, the voice of Lamentations urges, the voices of Lamentations urge readers to face suffering, to speak of it, to be dangerous proclaimers of truths that nations, families, and individuals prefer to repress. They invite us to honor the pain muffled in our hearts, overlooked in our society, and crying for our attention. Pain kept from speech, pushed underground and denied, will turn and twist and tunnel like a ferret until it grows in those lightless spaces into a violent, unrecognizable monster. Whether in personal, therapeutic, or political terms, Lamentations invites us into healing by giving speech to pain. It offers us language, form, and the power of example. And if our personal pain needs no attention at present, Lamentations still calls us 
to heed the voices of suffering around us. It reminds us that wholeness and reconciliation, personal, national, and global, cannot occur without the articulation of suffering in the face of denial and injustice. It calls us to see. I think the raw and honest emotion of lamentations and our discomfort with that, and it is truly uncomfortable, our discomfort with that mirrors also our discomfort with Lent. If we're honest, most of us, myself included, we would rather kind of skip over Lent. Right? We would rather, much rather get to Easter. We want resurrection. We don't want death. We don't want suffering. We want light, not darkness. And, and we know that the good news is coming. We know that resurrection is at the end of this journey. We know that there is light at the end of the tunnel. But the book of Lamentations and the season of Lent remind us that sometimes we have to wade through the darkness in order to get to that light. And that we have to give voice to those dark places of pain, sorrow, grief, and suffering without resorting too quickly to those easy answers. So may this season of Lent be for us a season of lament, a time where we shed light on those dark places that we would rather not acknowledge. So I invite you to begin thinking, thinking about this, thinking, what have I not properly lamented? What, what am I still grieving that I haven't been able to admit, perhaps even to myself? Maybe it's the loss of a loved one that still stings, even after many years. Perhaps it's regrets that have built up, eaten away at you. Maybe it's fear of a, of a diagnosis or declining health or a procedure. Fear of having to say goodbye potentially to someone or preparing for your own death. Perhaps it's a family conflict that no one wants to acknowledge but is still a festering wound that refuses to heal itself. Perhaps it's an old wound that you just have never brought up. What is the elephant in the room that no one dares name for you? Now, lament can be dangerous. It can be very painful. It is not easy, nor is it typically welcomed or received with open arms. But I think what we will find in the pages of this ancient poetry is the gift of the language of lament that promises to liberate us from our denial, to name our pain so that we might be truly freed from it. If you notice, Daughter Zion's repeated request throughout the poem, and indeed throughout the book, is not for her city to be restored or for her people to be returned, though she would certainly want that. It is not for God to come down and make everything right, to snap his fingers and everything to go back to normal, though that would also be welcome, I'm sure. All she wants is to be seen and heard, for her pain to be recognized, for her pain to be named. So may this season of Lent be for us a season of lament where we allow our pain to be seen and heard, where we listen for the voices of the daughter Zions that surround us, recognizing, seeing, and hearing the pain of the world for which Christ died, and learning the power of the language of lament in our own lives. Amen.